Ain't Nobody Gonna Turn Me Around, produced by the Freedom Singers and recorded at the White House with Michelle and Barack Obama, as well as Jill and Joe Biden in the audience, expresses the views of Solutions to Balance and our guest today, Sadiqa Reynolds. Hello, folks. We are Solutions to Balance. We are happy you can join us. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions to Balance is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you can do so by emailing us at solutionsofbalance18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Today's Solutions of Balance program is a recording of a virtual Third Thursday Lunch event. The Third Thursday Lunch event is being sponsored by the Louisville Fellowship of Reconciliation and Source of Justice. The Third Thursday Lunch event will take place before a virtual Zoom audience of 200 plus participants. The keynote speaker for the 21st Third Thursday Lunch event is Sadiqa Reynolds, a former district judge and currently the director of the Louisville Urban League. I'm Jim Johnson. The co-host for Solutions to Balance is Jamie McMillan, and our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Carl Rattan from Source of Justice will introduce Sadiqa Reynolds. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Carl Rattan, and I, along with Barbara Boyd, are co-chairs of the Source of Justice Network Board, which is one of the co-sponsors of this event. We are so happy to resume having third Thursday luncheons, albeit virtual today, after a hiatus of several months due to the pandemic. Fellowship of Reconciliation has been hosting third Thursday lunch conversations for over 25 years in our city, addressing topics of community concern and advocating for social justice. Both Sowers and FOR are partners in sponsoring this event, and both of our groups share the common values to advocate and work for social justice in our community based on our faith values. Before we, uh, I begin the introduction, let me remind you that all of you, please keep yourself muted unless you are invited to speak. We will have uh, questions, allow for questions throughout the conversation. Um, just put them in the chat box or you may raise your hand when we get into the Q&A later. So I want to begin by saying what a remarkable year we have just completed, and I'm hoping that 2021 brings us a little bit of hope. But 2020 has been one of the most difficult years, certainly with the pandemic, with the uh, racial difficulties in our city, the protests, the horrific shootings of Breonna Taylor and David McAtee, Additionally, we have the shocking news of over 170 deaths caused by shootings in our city, the highest ever. We now have a new police chief. So much is going on. So I couldn't be more pleased that we're going to have as our speaker today, Sadiqa Reynolds, who has really been at the heart of so much of the action and conversation in our city. And she's going to be talking today about police power and privilege. Sadiqa Reynolds is the president and CEO of the Louisville Urban League. Her appointment made her the first woman to hold this title in the affiliate Urban League of history of nearly 100 years. She previously served as chief of community building in the office of the mayor, where she oversaw 1,500 employees. She has served as district judge for the 30th Judicial Court. She was also the first African-American woman to clerk for the Kentucky Supreme Court and the first African-American to serve as Inspector General for the Commonwealth of Kentucky. Prior to entering the public sector, Sadiqa Reynolds owned and managed her private legal practice. Her practice included criminal and death penalty litigation, employment law, and representing abused, neglected, and dependent children. She demonstrated her deep commitment and compassion by providing hours of pro bono work for domestic violence victims and has been recognized for her contributions by the Louisville Bar Association. She is an advocate for mental health awareness and received the 2017 Community Leader of the Year Award from the National Alliance of Mental Illness because of work to reduce the stigma of mental health. She is also a proponent for restorative justice 
and participated in the Face It campaign to end child abuse. Her leadership at the Louisville Urban League has been remarkable. The Urban League Louisville has programs committed to building jobs, advocating for justice, working for education, health, and housing. I've been so impressed watching the Urban League in this time of COVID because they've offered COVID relief. They've offered vaccinations. And you may have seen uh, Sadiqa's picture on the paper uh, today of getting her a vaccine. They've offered, they're registering voters. They're doing health adv advocacy, pandemic relief. They've done so much to address the needs of the community during COVID. But she, they're also completing what I think is just this extraordinary project through her bold vision and leadership, the Urban League has developed the Norton's Sports Health and Learning Center at, the, at 30th and Muhammad Ali. The sports center, which is opening in just a few months, will bring major sports events to our city and is estimated to bring in thousands of visitors and millions in economic impact. $44 million has been committed to this project, and it's really, I believe, because of the extraordinary visionary and strong leadership of Sadiqa Reynolds. Sadiqa Reynolds has received many, many awards. I won't name them all, but among them is the 2017 Louisville Magazine Person of the Year Award and the 2018 National Urban League Woman of Power. She earned her BA in psychology from the University of Louisville and her law degree from the University of Kentucky. She's a member of the Delta Sigma Theta sorority, receiving honorary doctorates from Spalding and from Simmons College of Kentucky. And she has two amazing daughters, Sydney and Winter. And let me just say, in, before I pass the microphone over to Sadiqa, that um, we are so fortunate to have, because she is such a significant civil rights advocate in our community. Her prophetic leadership in this time has been significant and I'm confident will continue to be. She has been a vital advocate in this time of racial turmoil for justice and reform. She has pa uh, passionate love for our city. So we are so honored to have you with us today. Sadiqa Reynolds speaking on police, power and privilege. Thank you for being here. Oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much, Carl, for the wonderful introduction. And thank you all for allowing me to be here to talk about police power and privilege. And thank you to, let's see, Barbara, you know, everybody who thought it was a good idea for me to come and um, speak today. It is, it is, um, we are in interesting times for sure. And I, I really am always thankful to have um, a platform, always thankful that people still want to hear from me. I know these are, you know, tough times. And certainly yesterday was a little bit more inspirational than most of our days have been lately. So hopefully we're all, you know, we're starting from that space, right? But that being said, the world is still what it is. One day of ceremony does not change that. And so I hope that you understand that for me, there is the struggle of trying to have that moment of celebration while also balancing the very real world and challenges that the Urban League faces on a very regular and daily basis in trying to serve the people in this community, mostly Black people, but certainly all people, anyone who walks in our doors is welcome to get whatever it is that we have. And I, when every breath in my body that I fight with is for all of us really to be seen as and treated as equals and to have access to the same amount of power and privilege and the same opportunity to be policed in ways that, you know, are the same, just, you know, across communities, regardless of your zip code, regardless of, um, the color of your skin, regardless of your socioeconomic status. So because these conversations can be difficult, it is always, it says something about your group that you um, thought enough of me and the league to allow me to be here today. And so I want you to know that I recognize that I appreciate you. I know that in many cases, when I speak, I am often speaking to the choir, but I do believe also that sometimes even the choir gets out of tune and uh, needs to be checked on. So that's why you have, you know, 
directors and choral directors and all of this. And so I really want us to start from um, a place that I didn't realize we would actually have the opportunity to talk about, which is what happened on January 6th in our country's capital. And we're talking now about policing. You all have seen here in Louisville that there have been a significant number of protests throughout the city in response to the killing of Breonna Taylor. And you certainly have seen the response from our city leaders and from police. I can tell you that the very first night of protest, when I walked down into um, down Main Street, what I saw were um, ultimately once the protests moved to Jefferson, first on Main Street, I saw police really provoking and definitely there were people yelling things and saying things. But my understanding is that police have a significant amount of training on how to deal with these sorts of things. And then when we got to Jefferson, people were met with tear gas, with pepper bullets. And it was then that things began to get really violent. And, in, and it was after that that uh, seven people were actually shot that night. And we still don't know who shot them. Uh, don't understand that no camera footage, apparently, that anybody can use to identify who the shooters were. The police say they were not. But I, I think it's important for us to talk about the fact that that was after police began firing pepper bullets and tear gas. And I think about the gatherings that happened in Louisville, and they were not all peaceful. I will never pretend that they were, but most of them were. And in many cases, what I saw were, to be honest with you, and I think you all saw this on television, when we saw the subway, the windows of the subway sandwich shop being busted out, there was a white man who was doing that. And I found it interesting, some of the privilege that even the white people who were protesting um, with us were exercising. And I felt like in many ways could put um, Black people in even more danger. But beyond that, what I want you to examine, and I think it's worth all of us continuing to talk about, is how is it that we here would be met with police who say to protesters who are gathering outside of Churchill Downs, not on race day, I'm not talking about Derby Day now, I'm talking about, you know, weeks ahead of Derby on the bridge there on the overpass. And they were told if you get out of the street or you're going to be arrested. And so they got out of the street and they got on the sidewalk. And then they were told, okay, if you go further, you're going to be arrested. And of course they continued to walk and they were ultimately arrested that day. I think there were like 80 something people who were arrested. Think about what happened at the Capitol and what police response was and how much our bodies were policed in this city and across the country. I'm using Louisville as an example, but believe me, this is what happened across the country. And then you see what happened in DC. And now you hear and you are learning that there are law enforcement officers who joined in that protest on January 6th in their off time. Now you are seeing video of law enforcement officers taking selfies with the rioters. Now you see and you understand that there are Congress people who led them on tours. I hope you know and understand that your attorney general in Kentucky is on the executive committee of the attorney generals in this country who paid to have robocalls go out to people to say there will be a protest in, at the Capitol, doors open at 7 a.m., please join us and keep them from stealing the vote. Now, I think that the attorney general here is saying that he did not know anything about the robocalls. I, you can believe that or not, but where do and when do black people get any justice in this country? When, what does it take for people with power and privilege to recognize not only that the systems don't work for us, but to actually work on changing the systems. I mean, how much more blatant does it have to be before we actually see real change? That is the struggle. So while I am with you and, and I want to celebrate what has happened in this country, I can't push for a return to normal because normal 
was that my life didn't matter. That the two beautiful daughters that Carl just told you all I had, their lives are not important. So what is it going to take for you to raise your voices enough to push for change so that my life matters, so that I can have access to the very same same systems that you can access? So I, I think that we have to begin, not, it's not for me to give a speech about this, but it is for us to really think about, first of all, do you see what I see? Do you understand that if not only those protesters, those rioters, those terrorists, those insurgents who went to the Capitol, if they had been black, they could have never gotten that close. And even if they had been allies of black people, they could not have gotten that close. They have, could not have gotten in there. That is the conversation that we have to have. That's where you know policing is different in different communities because of what you look like, because of what you're standing up for. You are more at risk if you are standing for marginalized people. We have to be willing to talk about that and then to actually do something about it. Please think about this in Louisville, Kentucky with Breonna Taylor, right? This is a woman who worked at a hospital on the day she was killed. Imagine that she was white, that she worked all day, came home, went to dinner and a movie or dinner with her boyfriend, came home. Her mother's worry was, I just don't want you to get COVID. You know, make sure you're washing your hands, make sure you're washing your hands. And then She's killed in her home. The attorney general does a whole investigation and decides he's not even going to look at the issue of whether or not the affidavit for the warrant that was executed at her home was even a good warrant. I mean, here we are all these months later, and it was really Chief Yvette Gentry who finally said, I am firing the man who wrote the affidavit. And I'm thinking this man put everybody's life at risk. The, his colleagues, Brianna, Kenny, everybody. And for months, no one says anything. No one does anything. Imagine that she was not a black woman, but instead a white woman. Do you think that our city's response would have been the same? I don't think so. That, those are the kinds of issues that we are dealing with. Think about George Floyd. And I have had plenty of white people come to me and say to me, Sadiqa, I've always believed that you all were doing something, that you must have been doing something, right? When you were getting pulled over and these things were happening. I, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a racist, but I always believed there was something until I saw the George Floyd video. And for Black people, the only difference with George Floyd is that it was recorded. But we have been living through that and no one believes us. And if they do, there may be some repercussions, but there's no real change. That is the challenge of policing in our country. It has police officers, the system, there is the same bias. And even when you have good officers, white and black, there's only so much they can do in a system that was built to capture slaves. Go, you cannot re, you can't reform that system. You have to break it and completely build something else. And the people who have the power to do it don't seem to think the issue is urgent enough. And so we are criticized for the morning after the inauguration, not being happy enough, not being positive enough, not being hopeful enough. Do you know how many ceremonies we have sat through? Where do you, I mean, I want to inspire you but, but I, I want to do that with the truth. I mean, my inspiration to you is that, listen, you have so much power that I will never have. I have a law degree and honorary doctorates, and I was inspector general. And I always said, like, I'm the favorite Black person, I think, in many cases in this city. And my power is limited. My voice is muted because people get tired. They expect me to complain. They expect me to say, well, this isn't this, this, you know, but what about you? Where are your letters? Where's your letter to the editor? Where's your letter to the mayor over that time that he kept those officers employed and kept telling us that he could do nothing as our city damn near burned? We have got to push for accountability from people who should be accountable to us. 
systems that need to be changed. Banking. I wrote something today on Facebook. (laughs) Listen, trying to do business while Black in this country is exhausting. It is every day undermining of your intelligence. It makes you question your own judgment. And then you look at, we had the leader, the leader of the United States of America who's filed bankruptcy, the previous leader, what, at least four times, but we can't find people to invest in black dreams. And we are made to feel like we're not good enough when really it is the systems that were designed for us to be poor, for us to not have the resources. I want Joe Biden to be successful. I want Vice President Harris to be successful. And I should say President Biden and Vice President Harris. I also want us to be committed to pushing them to go further, to do more, to change the systems that really do keep Black people down. And they're designed to do it. It's enough already. And I am, and I'm, I tell you, um, what I think about Louisville is this city does have so much potential to really be an amazing beacon of light in this country to set the example for so many places. But we get really caught up in the rhetoric and we don't really look underneath necessarily for the work. As we rebuild, like we're we're building the sports and learning center in the West End. Thank you so much to Norton Healthcare. Thank you so much to Humana. Thank you so much to Kindred and other corporations that have stepped up. But you know, when is the last time you saw Churchill Downs make any significant investment in this community? And see, I'm 2021, I'm, I don't have to worry about saying the name of the organization. I'm tired. And we go out and celebrate. I, nobody loves Derby more than me. But the money that they make in this city, where is the investment in the Black community, in any community, in the Hispanic community? We don't hold our corporations accountable. We don't push for pathways to Black ownership because we, we listen, we can watch, we can look up the street at Nashville and we can see what gentrification looks like and what it does. What happens when you have people who have been in communities that have not been invested in and they sit there with their property values going down and someone comes to appraise it and tells them their three bedroom house with the garage doesn't, looking out at the parkway has no value. And then all of a sudden, when we begin to see investments in those communities, there's some speculative developer knocking on the door saying, we will buy, I will buy, we will buy. You can stay here until you die and then, and then we'll take it. You know, we'll give you this money now, stay here until you die. And again, um, no ability for us to build wealth, to be in charge of our own futures. And then as the developments happen, people are pushed out. Why? Because they can't afford the property values, because the rents now have to go up, because the mortgages are not attainable, because now it's the hot property. So we know this happened in Nashville. We're seeing it happen in Harlem. We're seeing it everywhere. We don't have to do that, Louisville. We can do something different, but it will take more than my voice. Sure, the Urban League, along with Rebound, we we build and rehab affordable housing, but they're not affordable to everybody. We have to also have affordable rentals. We have people who just do not have the money to buy. But as philanthropy invests and as government invests, there has to be a pathway to Black ownership. That is how you respond to redlining. There are simple things that have happened in this country that have broken the backs of Black people. And this country, this city, owes us a legitimate, full response. And so we have 6,000 children who are homeless in our Jefferson County public school systems. We can fix that because we've got 6,000 vacant and abandoned properties. We need investment with a pathway to black ownership. And listen, I'm not here to say, and I don't think white people should own anything. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying where philanthropy invests and where government invests. I am never ever saying, I don't think this group should have. I'm really just saying, I think this group, 
deserves more access or some access. That's all it is. I don't dislike white people. I love everybody. I think God wants us to take care of each other. And that doesn't mean a handout. That doesn't really mean charity. I think people get confused. That's sometimes charity, but change the policy so I don't need the charity. That's what we need to have happen in this country and in this city. And we need it now. And you don't get to decide that you are tired of hearing about race. You don't get to turn it off because you are drained. You know why? Because I don't get to turn it off. I am a black woman in every space I enter. And so if I throw on my hoodie and run to the store when it's raining and they don't recognize me, whatever privilege I have in this city is erased. If I go on vacation because I make a nice living and I can afford actually to take a break from it all, not really. How do I take a break from it all in this skin? We need the policies shifted. We need change and we need your voices. This group of people that I am looking at, you are brilliant. You are accomplished. You have so much power when you gather, when you collude. <laughs> and I want you to collaborate on behalf of the people that the Urban League is trying to empower. Because I, unfortunately, I don't think the window will be open for long. And these bankers who chose Trump for the last four years and in the last election and who have benefited financially in every way, where is their real investment? Not the baloney investment, but the real investment. Because for 401 years, we have struggled in this country. But the last four years, all those people who say, well, I never held slaves. Well, I never. If you supported that monster who said things that made people feel comfortable mailing me death threats and hate mail and toilet paper, in the mail because they said I was just a piece of crap. They used other language. If that's who you supported in order to build your financial fiefdom, that was on my back. We deserve something. We deserve investment in our community that empowers us, that changes outcomes, that help to close achievement gaps, jobs, justice, education, health, and housing. And you've asked the question and I'm looking at the questions. Why is it important to have a civilian review board? Because there has to be accountability. And understand this. This is interesting, and I don't know if people recognize it. In response to the Breonna Taylor killing, there were lots of questions that the community could not get answered. And so people said, listen, we want an independent review board because we were under the impression that the public integrity unit of the police department was not investigating this properly. We were not going to get any justice. So people said we want an, we want an independent investigation. Well, Actually, they were investigating. And in fact, it turns out their investigation so far has been the most thorough because it was their investigation that led to the termination of the other officers. And if you look at those videos of the SWAT commander, when I look at those videos and I think if I was in charge of that police department, I would have fired those guys that night. Watch the video if you don't believe me. That being said, in response to the community push for an independent investigation of police officer-involved shootings, the mayor's office, and I guess Metro Council, I don't know if they were involved, I can't remember, moved those investigations over to the Kentucky State Police. So their response was, we will move the investigations to Kentucky State Police until we come up with a better system. But for right now, this is what we're gonna do. And then we have these fabulous manual high school students who uncover this racism in the Kentucky State Police trainings, right? And so they see these Hitler quotes and quotes from General Lee in the Kentucky State Police training. The response from KSP is so tone deaf that it leads to the resignation, termination, whatever, of a leader. And I'm thinking, and these are the people who right now are on deck to investigate any police officer involved shooting in Louisville, Kentucky. Even when we win, we lose. The choices are horrible. <laughs> so this civilian review board, ultimately, I wish that it would have subpoena power. 
it, it, it doesn't right now and it won't for a long time because that will have to go through Frankfurt because the Louisville folk swear they cannot figure out a way to get this body in the independent subpoena authority. So we'll see. But that's why you need a civilian review board to be able to investigate and look at and respond to these officer involved incidents and not even necessarily shootings because there are other things as well. So I think that answers a question. I am going to try to go through the questions that I see here to, uh, yes, to just to respond. The militarized presence just was not at the Capitol. That's correct. There was no real military response. In fact, I think the National Guard was not called until much, much later at the Capitol on January 6th. But again, if that had been people of color, Black people, allies of Black people, um, there is no way that that would have been the case. And I think we really need to make sure there are significant consequences for those who called that protest, that riot, who caused it, and also for those who participated. Because they're not people who are walking around in KKK robes. These are regular people who work at banks and, you know, police officers. And did you all notice that... um, of the National Guard officers who were sent in to work the inauguration, I think 12 or 14 of them had to be sent home because they were vetted and found to have been involved in some sort of white supremacist group. And then did you also see the article where the FBI says when they are investigating white supremacists in many cases, they do not tell local police because they understand the connections. Where are the consequences for this? How could you ever imagine that black people and people of color could ever find justice in systems built that allow for such a thing. How can we root out the racism and racists in our police force? Well, I think we're gonna have to completely, y'all don't like to hear defund the police, but I don't know how to build another structure without completely breaking the structure that is in place. I know there are a lot of amazing police officers, not just in this city, but across the country. Some of them are my friends, they cannot fix this system. They cannot fix this system. The whole system is corrupt and needs to be changed. The racial trauma experienced on a daily basis by black people. This is what I want you all to understand. And I don't, I don't know how this is gonna play on the radio, but as we're talking here, what I believe black people suffer with is something, I don't know if this is a real term, it's the term that I use, ongoing traumatic stress disorder. So if you imagine that a soldier goes to war and comes home and they're traumatized by what they see, by what they experience, and we call that post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, in my opinion, black people are every day traumatized. And I always think about that I I have a law degree and I have such a blessed life. I mean, I, I, I haven't had to worry about whether or not I could pay my light bill in a long, long time, but I'm still so exhausted. I'm still so aware of my limitations. I am still so aware of my place. And so, you know, at the league, we have an example of at the top of COVID, as the city was cleaning streets and they were, you know, of course, trying to make sure we kept people busy with work, with whatever work could be done. Apparently they towed a bunch of cars, the cars that looked like they were, you know, they're on blocks or whatever. They looked like they hadn't moved in a while. And I had two grown men in tears in the parking lot at the urban league because to get your car towed, I think it's maybe like $140. And then there's a late every day, there's a day charge when you are barely making it, 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 it's just those things that are just enough to break you. And every day is just something else. It's just another thing. And I've experienced so much in building this, this, this uh, the Norton Sports Health and Learning Center. Some of the barriers that I've had to overcome, if I were building this in prospect, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't be there. If I were a different race, if I were a different leader, and I don't think there's a black person in this city that could have done it. And I haven't done it yet. (laughs) And it's not done until it's open. This is hard and it's harder than you know. And And I so desperately wanted to find the thing to keep that rah rah attitude going for you today, but we don't deserve it. 
because we don't work hard enough to celebrate. We don't work hard enough to end racism to celebrate. We want to turn it off. I want to turn it off. I want to end it, though. There's a difference. Going back to your questions, the comments are wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, let's see. Churchill Down has gleefully destroyed the neighborhoods around it. Absolutely. Same housing as the Highland Central Avenue. Yeah. Thank you for the comment, Rody. Yes, this is important. I think Carl raises a good point too. Investing in black leadership, in black institutions. Um, Simmons University is an HBCU here in our city, trying, struggling to really completely get on its feet, trying hard though. Um, and we understand from data that cities with HBCUs do better. You're, you're, they, they just do statistically in every way, educational outcomes, business, everything. We need to see investment there. The Louisville Urban League, Black leadership, we have to have investments in our dreams and not just, and there are some very small organizations that are doing good work as well that need the support. But what usually happens in the Black community is that when people are ready to use their power and their privilege to invest, that comes with instruction. Something happened to me last week that I, I've never experienced. Um, Myers grocery store called, wanted to meet. No problem, we'll meet in person, that's okay. We'll just social distance. And they came in and said, we've been seeing the work you do. We've watched the league for long enough and we have a quarter of a million dollars to help you. And you can use it for the sports complex. You can use it for the workforce stuff you do, whatever you need, because we trust your leadership. These people don't even know me. I've never met them before. I don't know if you understand how powerful that is. I trust your leadership. We see the work you're doing. And quite frankly, it could not have come at a better time because I really still need millions of dollars for the sports complex. We are still, what we have decided to do on the end of that, just so you know, is to um, borrow the last $10 million needed. So we've been able to raise $43 million in 18 months, which is pretty amazing. And then the last bit of it will be borrowed by a conglomerate of banks so that we can get it closed. So the more we have in philanthropy, the less we have to worry about paying back. And of course, we're building this facility at 30th and Muhammad Ali on land that was contaminated. So we spent 3 million just cleaning it, just doing what was necessary to make the place, to make it safe. And so it has been an interesting exercise for me to see how hard it has been just to get real investment in this part of the community. And, and I feel like a failure in a way. So many people are celebrating and apparently there were great news stories yesterday. I didn't get to see them, but I cannot celebrate knowing that I'm taking, you know, $10 million worth of debt into this project with me. Um, and, and I think, it, you know, some of it was timing because of COVID and I, you know, was distracted by other things, but it just shouldn't be so hard. And it is very, very hard to be successful in this community when you when you look like me or when you're doing work in the part of the community predominantly you know filled with people who look like me and i don't want you to forget that i'm i, I will never allow anybody to forget um just how tough it really is it doesn't mean it can't change and please remember that point because i don't want to ever leave people hopeless i think we can be better but we have to be intentional about it. And if that means Carl and, and Barbara and other folks calling me and saying, hey, what can we do? How, what, what, what letter do we need to write? How can we join you? Because I also don't think this is a Republican or Democrat issue. I think this is just a human issue and we've got to deal with that. I'm going back to your questions. Um, <clears throat> what do you know about the FOP contract? Does the police academy vet its applicants for psychological health? They're supposed to, but you think about Brent Hankinson, right? And some of the allegations that have been levied against him. So you have the women who've made allegations. You have all of the things that went wrong on the Breonna Taylor case. You even have the other officers criticizing his behavior that night. And then you have, uh, I think there was another officer, another incident where he broke the, something happened, maybe broke the back of another officer in a, in a, in a car accident. And he was found to be at fault for that. 
And but what took two years for Chief Conrad to even get around to having him be reprimanded. And then it was just like a few days suspension. So even when you find psychological issues, what is the response, right? What is the response of leadership? I think those are the things that we have to think about. So revamping police training is always good. I think we should always push for constant um, cultural competency because part of it is the humanization of the people you are working with and understanding that you really are hired to serve and to protect everybody, everybody. And part of the reason the thing happened at the Capitol was because the police and the leadership did not believe that they needed to be protected from the people who were coming. And again, don't take my word for it. Look up the fact that the attorney generals across this country paid for the robocall to tell people to come to the Capitol. I have heard it. <laughs> Doors open at 7 a.m. Don't allow them to steal the election. That The attorneys general. So... Uh, let's see. Next question. What do you see best ways for white folks to support? I talked about that. L-Surge is wonderful. I think they do good work. In many cases, I think, um, you know, people might have different strategies, but we want to end up in the same place. There, I, I hope you all will look at and read the Path Forward document. Uh, there were more than 50 organizations in this community that came together to to write that because we knew as people were protesting that we would get the question, what is it that you all want? What do you need? And so we said, well, jobs, justice, education, health and housing. We want affordable housing. We want investment in black businesses. Um, you know, we want to close the achievement gap. We need to look at reducing ratios in some of these schools. We need to look at out of school time programming and how we make sure that our young people have what they need. We and, and, and we don't want to close the achievement gap on the backs of white children, right? Because it's in everybody's interest for all children to be educated. So I don't think we should be holding back white children and say, okay, you stay here so they can catch up to you. No. We should allow them to keep moving forward and we should be doing what we have to do to get us all here. That's the point of it. I think sometimes people feel like if they really want, if they really fight for equity, it means that you're going to take something away from somebody else. Stop believing that the pie is limited. I mean, we can print money. Look, we just all got stimulus checks, whether you needed them or not. Harvard University got so much money, they sent it back. Ruth's Chris sent their check back. So we just have to be committed to the change. I think that's the important part of this. I want to stop and let you all ask questions if you need to. I'm still going through um, your chat as well, but please just jump right in. And um, I will answer if I can. And if you all want to ask a question um, out loud, just raise your hand by clicking on the participants button or the reactions button at the bottom and we'll answer folks as long as we can. Um, first come, first serve. Mm -hmm. we, we probably have time for a, to a couple questions. Yeah, and I'm looking at these in the chat. If you don't have them, I'll keep going. Anybody got one? Got one. Go ahead. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Sadiqa. Uh, I loved uh, the path forward. I thought that was incredibly helpful and your timing was, I thought, perfect on getting that out. Um, I'm kind of interested in the next step of how do you start um, moving in the direction, embracing one of the objectives and moving. And my particular interest is in recruiting staff for my small organization, but um, interns. And I was just wondering what you would suggest as the way to start. Well, I mean, so the recruiting of people for your companies or organizations, I think is very important. And we get those all the time. We'll get people sending jobs and we share them. The challenge is when the Urban League sends people for positions, we have usually worked with folks to make sure that it's a good fit because we not only want to help you play someone, but we want them to be retained. There is not enough investment in that workforce development work. There are human resources needed in order to really be successful to do that kind of work. And I think that's important for us to say. That being said, um, I think you can use your network to say, 
you know, we want culturally competent staff, or we'd like to have a staff that is as diverse as the community we sit in, you know, can you help us achieve that? And you can say that on your own social media accounts. I'm happy to have that shared with the league and we can share it with other organizations or just with community in general. I mean, we were able to place almost 400 people in jobs even before COVID hit and we're still placing people. We're still doing um, job hires and all that. So happy to help, but also recognize the real need for investment around that because it does take human resources to do that recruiting. But I'd certainly appreciate the question and everything you do. Anybody else? Yes, I have a question. Yes, Alexis. Please identify yourself and let's, let, let's have this be the last question. Okay, hi, I'm Alexis from WLKY. I access in the chat, but you probably didn't see it. So Sadiqa, you've been very vocal about your disapproval of Erica Shields being hired as LNPD's chief, but you do vow to still work with her. So what will that work consist of as it relates to, you know, moving Louisville forward, you know, maybe changing the department? Have you reached out? Have you gotten a response? Yeah. Um, so I have been vocal and I wasn't necessarily, so here's what I think. I think the mayor oversold her, right? When he said, oh, we had a phenomenal group of, of, of um, applicants. Well, that couldn't possibly be true, right? Everywhere across the country, police chiefs are quitting. Um, I, you know, this woman came with some baggage, right? She had, she came after a police involved shooting in Atlanta and she said she didn't want to be a distraction in Atlanta. So my question was only, well, how could you be concerned about being a distraction in Atlanta and not think that you would be a distraction to us? Now, that being said, when I woke up this morning, I thought of Chief Shields and I said to myself, I will not criticize her any further because she's here. She is our chief of police and it is my job to work with her as much as I can. So I will critique her if she makes a mistake here, but I'm gonna let the past be the past, I guess, and just try my best to move forward. We are always willing to work with anyone who was willing to work with us. Uh, Chief Shields sent me a text two Sundays ago. I responded to her immediately um, and explained to her my concerns and my thoughts. She responded back. She did not ask to meet with me. I will meet with her whenever she's ready. I imagine she's probably overwhelmed with all of the challenges and unfinished discipline they have um, in that office. My hope is that she will see through to the best of her ability, the terminations and all consequences for all officers um, who have um, been involved in the Breonna Taylor case. And I'm still worried about the Explorer case. It, it, as a, I mean, as a person who is a child advocate, a guardian ad litem, and I've represented a thousand or more abused children in this community, I am concerned about the idea of police having sex with children. <laughs> and I wanna know who knew about it. And I wanna know why people aren't talking more about it. That needs to be resolved. I understand that the FBI is investigating, but what is happening in the department? So will I work with her? Absolutely, a thousand percent. And I pray for her success because in my view, her success is our success. Well, Reynolds, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your witness today, for your very moving remarks. Yeah, thank you. Uh, mostly, I'm, I, I love your passion, and uh, you challenge us deeply, deeply, deeply. There's so much work to do, and, and I'm glad you're a part of the leadership that's making that happen. So we are honored that you could be with us today. We hope that our conversations with you will continue, and we hope that our, uh, for, uh, for Sowers of Justice and FOR, Fellowship of Reconciliation, I hope we can uh, continue to work, support your work and the Urban League. At this point, I am going to turn the uh, meeting over to Barbara Boyd and uh, let her give the announcements about our next meeting. Thank you all so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everybody. I'm sorry it took me so long to uh, unmute. I want to uh, thank you, Sadiqa, for a wonderful presentation. And again, my name is Barbara Boyd, and I want to invite everyone to join us next uh, third Thursday luncheon during Black History Month. The program is going to feature U of L professor and LACE member Dr. Lisa Markowitz, Dr. Tomas Edison with Louisville Cooperative Grocery Board, and he's the president of that, and me. 
uh, Barbara Boyd, and I'm president of the Louisville branch of ASALA. ASALA is the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. And we are going to be talking about collaboratives and how collaboratives can offer new solutions for West Louisville. Also, I want to tell you about a challenge, fly the flag. As I was saying, I am president of the Louisville branch of the Carter G. Woodson branch of ASALA. ASALA is the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History. Will you accept a challenge from the Louisville ASALA to fly the red, black, and green African-American heritage flag during the month of February 2021. What if the flag of solidarity was flown at Louisville Metro Hall and other government buildings across the county? Local faith communities, homes, businesses, and schools. If you would go to sourceofjusticenetwork.org and learn how to make a donation to receive a $15 flag, a $20 yard sign in solidarity. Purchases benefit the Louisville Dr. Carter G. Woodson, a solid branch and its partners. And the items will be available by February 1st. And I wanna let you know about Asala's vision. It's to be the premier black heritage society with a diverse and inclusive membership supported by a strong network of national and international branches to continue the Woodson legacy. Dr. Woodson's legacy and mission is to be the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History, to promote, research, preserve, and interpret and disseminate information about Black life, history, and culture to the global community. We should not have to go to college to learn about the African-American experience. We have a branch that that's uh, we're going on our second year of being chartered. And I'd like to invite you. You want to know what you can do. Education is always the key out of darkness. And we have a branch here. And let me let you know that the third Thursday lunch for February is going to be February 18th. Hope to see you there. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us. See you next month. Listeners, we're out of time. Our guest today has been Sadiqa Reynolds, former district judge and current director of the Louisville Urban League. The January 21st virtual third Thursday lunch event has been sponsored by the Louisville Source of Justice and the Louisville Fellowship for Reconciliation. The Solutions of Violence program that features Sadiqa Reynolds will be repeated Tuesday, January 26th at 8 a.m., and Wednesday, January 27th at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Cindy Reynolds will be placed in our archives Wednesday, January 27th. To listen via our archives, just visit our website, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Cindy Reynolds and the Third Thursday Lunch. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise, delight, and may even challenge you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Broadcast Schedule. Thank you again for joining us with Solutions of Violence. I'm Jim Johnson.